This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray to the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. As you know, I've devoted quite a large amount of time to researching the idea that botanical-style aquariums can provide supplemental nutrition for the fishes which reside in them. And yeah, here's yet another discussion on this topic. Although I think this is hugely important, so much that I'm writing about this stuff and talking about it near constantly, right? However, this time I'm going to bring along some data I gleaned from studies done on fishes from some of the wild habitats we love so much as ammunition for this topic. The ammunition is really more of an argument for my hypothesis that our botanical style aquariums produce meaningful amounts of supplemental foods of similar type and in a variety like that found in some of the natural habitats of our fishes. Now, it starts with looking at some of my favorite facts that you can find about fishes in scientific papers. The gut content analysis, which essentially tells you what the fishes have been eating in the locality where they were collected. These little GCAs, as I call them, give us a ton of usable information for hobby purposes. Not only do we learn what the fishes consume, it gives us some insight about the ecology of the ecosystems where they're found. Lots of good stuff that we can play with. Here's an interesting volumetric comparison by percentage of some of the foods which were found in gut content analysis of a ribulous species of killifish from a flooded South American forest floor, one of our favorite you know, habitats. So here's the breakdown. Vascular plant detritus, 45%. Green algae, 18%. Detritus, 12%. Filamentous blue-green algae, 8%. Diatoms, 6%. Bacterial aggregates, 3%. Interesting. And here's another interesting analysis from a Hyphesobrycon species, a tetra, from a similar habitat. Detritus, 21%. Small amphipods, 18%. Sediment, 15%. Filamentous algae, 11%. Ostracods, 7%. Benthic diatoms, 6%. Copepods, 6%. Chironomid larvae, that's bloodworms to you and I, 6%. Isopods, 3%. Undifferentiated insects, 3%. Nematodes, 2%. Bacterial aggregates, 2%. Now, sure, there are items like aquatic crustaceans and insects which comprise part of the diets of these fishes. We know this. But what's even more interesting to me is the percentage of detritus and bacterial aggregates, which make up a part of the gut content analysis of these fishes. Yes, our old friend detritus again, go figure. I mean, it makes perfect sense, really. A lot of what's available for fishes through the lean and the abundant times of the year is detritus made up of assorted organic materials. Let's trot out that definition I love so much one more time. Detritus is dead particular organic matter. It typically includes the bodies or fragments of dead organisms as well as fecal material. Detritus is typically colonized by communities of microorganisms which act to decompose or remineralize the material. Think about it, a mix of stuff you'd find just about anywhere. These materials are pretty much always available in almost any aquatic habitat at any time of year. And fishes are remarkably adaptive to the changes in the habitats which occur with the seasons and will make use of whatever is available to them for nutrition. Now, sure, 
One could state that detritus is the food of last resort for fishes. But the fact of the matter is, it turns up in gut content analysis of fishes caught in all sorts of habitats during almost any time of the year. It's wildly abundant in aquatic habitats. So where am I going with this? Well, think about it for a minute. Detritus is a sort of end product of the breakdown of botanical materials, right? It's pretty much a given that you'll find a lot of this stuff in almost any one of our botanical style aquariums, provided that we don't siphon it all out in our zeal to create this perfect habitat for fishes. Perfect is in air quotes. You can sense the sarcasm there, right? I mean, why do you think our little fishes are typically fat and happy when we come back from vacation and haven't fed them for a week or more? It's because they're foraging on the detritus that's pretty abundant in just about any tank, especially in botanical style systems that we play with. Detritus, as I said like 20,000 times here and elsewhere, is not the sign of the apocalypse that authors and armchair pundits have made it to be you know, for generations in aquariums. No, rather, it's an important part of the natural diet of many, many fishes. And I haven't even touched on the fact that detritus is a food for a multitude of organisms all along the food chain in aquatic ecosystems, including your botanical style aquarium. And what about algae? Well, in every aquarium, regardless of how scrupulous we are about maintenance, will generate some algae in some manner, right? Of course it does, because algae is the basis for virtually every aquatic ecosystem, right? And in addition to being abundant, it's nutritious. Botanical-style aquariums filled with nutrients from decomposing materials are a good habitat in which algae proliferate. We know this. If we like the hell out of a, a botanical-style aquarium, you might see an algae bloom at times. And with so many surfaces on botanicals for algae to, blow, to grow on, it's a natural food that requires you know, little expenditure for fishes to find. What other foods are easily produced by the botanical style aquarium? Well, how about biofilms? Described in these analyses as bacterial aggregates, these are ubiquitous in the wild and botanical style tanks as well, and possibly the easiest to obtain food source at all times for so many fishes. Now, in the specific instances that I talked about before, they made up a very small percentage within the gut content analysis, though. Why? Well, think about it. Fishes like tetra, you know, the Hyphesa brycon in the example I just I gave up, uh, just a minute ago, tend to preferentially consume small crustaceans and insects, etc. They're considered micro-predators by ichthyologists. However, the more abundant materials like detritus and sediments are likely present in the gut content analysis because the fishes are consuming or taking them in while foraging for the aforementioned organisms, a sort of bycatch which just happens to be nutritious, or filling at the least, right? Biofilms, as we discussed many times before here, are a complex mix of sugars, bacteria, and other materials, all of which are relatively nutritious for animals which feed on them. The botanical-style aquarium will virtually automatically farm biofilms with little effort on your part. This is truly one of the great bonuses for those of us who keep these kinds of systems, a more or less continuous supply of nutritious supplemental food. An abundance. And of course, you can certainly cultivate copepods like cyclops or amphipods, you know, bloodworms, paramecium, blackworms, daphnia, etc. as supplemental in situ foods allowed to multiply for several weeks or more before you add your first fishes. I've done this type of thing many times with reef tanks and more recently with botanical style aquarium. It works really well. And I can attribute my success with a number of fishes which have the reputation of being difficult to feed at first by embracing this idea. And it gives newly hatched fishes a leg up to gain valuable nutrition before you commence feeding them directly. Having an abundance of these in-situ food sources in your botanical style tank makes it much easier for wild-caught fishes to adapt to a captive environment, in my opinion. I mean, it's not the whole ballgame, of course. However, it's one less stress, one less hurdle to overcome to achieve success with some wild-caught species. Interestingly, 
there are a fair number of situations where fishes, even non-herbivorous species, will consume stuff like leaves and other plant materials directly when their primary foods aren't available. This ability to switch feeding as foods are available is a remarkable adaptation. Blackwater systems, as we know, do show seasonal fluctuations like lakes and watercourses enriched with overflow in spring months. At low water levels, the nutrients in the populations of these life forms are generally more dense. Creatures like hydrocarines, also known as mites, insects like chironomids, again bloodworms, and copepods like daphnia are dominant fauna that the fish tend to feed on in these waters. It's interesting to contemplate when we consider what to feed our fishes in the aquarium, isn't it? There's a lot of food out there for the fishes you know, willing to look for it, which pretty much all of them devote most of their lives to doing. <laughs> it's really not that much different in the aquarium, is it? I mean, as the leaves and botanicals break down, they're acted upon by fungi and bacteria, the degree of which is independent upon, or is dependent, excuse me, upon the available food sources. Now, granted, with fishes in closer proximity and higher density to the many wild systems, the natural food sources are probably not sufficient to be the primary source of food for our fishes, but they're one hell of a supplement, right? That's why in a botanical rich leaf litter dominated aquarium, you see the fishes spending a lot of time foraging in and among the litter, just like they do in nature. There's something oddly compelling to us when we look at both aquariums and natural biotopes with diverse, interesting botanical structure. You set the stage with wood, with plants, and then enhance it even more when you add botanical materials to your aquarium. It's well known that many habitats, like inundated forests and places like that, um, will have fishes adjust their feeding strategies to utilize the available sources, uh, food sources that are available at different times of the year, like the dry season. And it's also known that many fish fry feed actively on bacteria and fungi in these habitats. So I suggest, once again, that a botanical-style aquarium could be an excellent sort of nursery for many fish species. And then there's those insects. Insects and their larvae, both from aqu the aquatic habitat and the surrounding terrestrial habitats, are an important part of our fish's diets. I'd like to see much more experiments with foods like ants, fruit flies, and other winged insects. Of course, I can hear the protests already. Not in my house, Feldman. I mean, I get it. Who wants a plague of winged insects getting loose in their suburban home because of some aquarium feeding experiment gone awry, right? That being said, I would encourage some experimentation with ants and the already fairly common wingless fruit flies. Can you imagine one day recommending an ant farm as a piece of essential aquarium food culturing equipment? I mean, why not, right? Fishes eat ants all the time. They're found in gut content analysis a lot, and ants will fall off the trees in the forest into the water, and fish will snap them up. Why do you think a lot of these kerosens, and such as hatchet fishes, have an upturned mouth? They're waiting for those little guys to fall. <laughs> Indeed, the whole process of external inputs can be, should be, replicated in our botanical-style blackwater aquariums. As more materials fall from the trees and surrounding dry areas, the greater abundance of fishes and other aquatic animals which utilize them is found. And materials will continue to fall into the water and accumulate throughout the period of inundation, maintaining the richness of the habitat as others decompose or are acted upon by organisms residing in the water. Not unlike what happens in an aquarium, right? With so many options provide, for providing you know, realistic natural conditions for our fishes, it just seems painfully obvious that we can look to the whole picture and think of ways to replicate the abundance of natural foods that also occur in our aquariums if we let them. I'll say it one more time because I absolutely believe it. Of all the things that we do in our botanical style aquariums, one of the best practices that I think we can do is to actually allow nature to do some of the work by providing some sustenance for our fishes. 
I think that as we evolve into the next era of botanical style aquarium practice, we'll see more and more interesting collateral benefits and analogs to the functions of natural aquatic ecosystems. We need to explore these characteristics and benefits as we develop our next generation of aquariums. Nature offers us an abundance of foods, many of which are already present in our aquariums. Why not take advantage of what nature offers us? Stay thoughtful, stay observant, stay diligent, stay curious, stay educated, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks so much for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you again on the next installment of The Tannin.